Good morning. If you have your Bibles, go with me to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. We will be in the first uh, 19 verses in Acts chapter 9. I want to pray for us as we begin to study His Word. Father, uh, may you grant us by Your Spirit eyes to see, hearts that are humble to receive. May Your Word uh, show us more clearly who You are this morning, that we might respond appropriately. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> I don't know how familiar this story is to you personally, but the story that we're about to read is probably the most popular conversion story of all history. The conversion of Saul, the Pharisee, the persecutor of the first Christians, later whom we will come to know as Paul, the writer of much of the New Testament. Here we are about to read the story of how God led him through conversion. He was a, later becomes a follower of Christ with such insight into the scriptures and such faithful commitment to the Lord. This Saul we're about to read of his conversion. We had just saw last week as Rusty preached through the passage preceding this on the Ethiopian eunuch in his conversion and saw many things there of particular of importance is how God loves and cares for all nations. In the weeks to come we will see How the gospel moves to the Gentiles for the first time as a massive movement. As it begins to infiltrate and and change the lives of those outside of Judaism for the first time in such a large movement. But here, I think, for most of us in this room, we see the conversion of someone that was impossible. At least seemingly impossible. And yet God did it. We think, I, I think if I, for, for those who are familiar with this story, and if not, I hope you'll be familiar by the time we're done. For those who are familiar, we think, well, this is an amazing story. God, that God would save a, a persecutor, someone who was murdering Christians. That God would rescue him and then empower him to write much of the New Testament. Writing Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and so on. What a marvelous story that God would do that, that God would rescue someone, not just out of uh, being a semi-immoral person, but someone who was actually murdering Christians. That God would do that. What a marvelous story. But then we also, again, if you're familiar with this story and been around people who are familiar with this story, you, you begin to also hear the story talked about like this. What are you looking for? A Damascus Road experience? What are we talking about? What's that phrase mean if you've ever heard that? Well, what you're asking is, do you want some marvelous light to blind you or to come down upon you or God to crack open the sky in order to tell you what needs to happen or what you need to do? Are you just waiting for a Damascus Road experience? Or, if we are evaluating oftentimes whether or not we are truly redeemed and we are reflecting on this, many of us yearn to look back to see a blinding light that we can point to that assures us we have been saved. We want to look back to a Damascus Road experience. And then I think after this, after we think about the, the marvelousness of the story and then maybe the, the uniqueness of the Damascus Road experience, then we kind of move on from this passage. But here's what I want to point out to us today. What we see here in this passage is the sovereign, merciful intervention of God into a wretched and self-righteous man's life bringing him to Christ and making him a chosen instrument. We see God sovereignly, providentially, 
stepping in, reaching into Saul's life and rescuing him. A little bit about this guy named Saul, whom we later know as Paul. He knew the Bible well. Matter of fact, he knew the Bible extremely well. Saul would have had much of the, particularly the Pentateuch, he would have had much of it memorized. Saul went to church when he was supposed to. He was there when the doors were open. He attended house gatherings when he was supposed to. He served in the nursery when he was supposed to, albeit, I am sure, with a bit of grumbling in his heart. He even, as a good Christian, sought to hold all those Jews who were defecting to the way of Christ accountable. I mean, you know, all those sinners, he was going to point out their sin. He was a good Christian. He knew what to say to the religious people around him, and he knew how to live externally so that everyone thought well of him. Even amidst all the seemingly faithful external actions, Saul's heart, though, was rejecting the good news of Jesus. In the midst of the good news of Christ, he could not see the God right before his very eyes. Paul thought, or Saul thought rather, that he could only be right before God if he laid down his worldly way of living and lived this righteous life, which indeed is the result of someone who's following Christ. But Saul believed that his rightness before God was earned, was established, was accomplished by his doings. Here's the hard truth, I think. The reality is, this is more than a story about a really mean guy who God rescued and sent to write much of the New Testament. It's a story about a self-righteous jerk whom God humbled and rescued by His own choosing, God's own choosing and God's own doing. And the reality is that most of us in this room, whether we grew up in church or not, whether we're familiar with the story or not, are going to likely find ourselves more like Saul than we realize. Here in this passage, we see again how the sovereign, merciful intervention of God rescues men and women in the depth of their depravity, the depth of their sinfulness, if you will. And I think what we see in this passage, we see just how God does that, just how God moves into a person's life and and the process, if you will, of conversion. I don't mean, when I think about the process of conversion in this story, I don't mean like regeneration and uh, new birth and justification and sanctification and that process, but, but the experiential side of this process, like phys- physically, visibly, what is happening in Paul's life, that I think if we understand this passage well, we can walk away going, these are three things that are present in anyone's story of conversion. Now, we've got to be careful because... We cannot get hung up on the details of the story, even as marvelous as the details are in this story. Listen, everyone's conversion, every person who has been converted to walk with Christ, to love Christ, to depend on Him, to believe in His blood payment for their sins, every person's conversion looks very different. For some, it happens overnight, seemingly. They have not much information, if any at all, about who Christ is. And no more overnight, it seems as though they now believe and are wanting to follow Christ. For other people, it takes years. For some, it's, there seems to be more of an emotional heightness. And while others, their affections seem to move just a little. And yet again, I believe amidst the details, we see three parts that are necessary in the experience of conversion. 
Uh, Keller called these three parts collision, darkness, and embrace. Collision, darkness, and embrace. But let's read Acts chapter 9, verse 1 through 5. It says this, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. I think the first aspect, the first part of conversion is that God confronts us with the truth. To be converted, one must be confronted with the truth. I'm going to talk about what this truth is and some aspects of this truth, but nevertheless, one must be confronted with the truth. Here we go. Saul was blinded, but he wasn't blinded by just any old light. It wasn't like God just kind of pulled back the clouds and intensified the sun, he was blinded by the glory of Christ. He was blinded by the brightness of Christ. He was blinded by the presence of Christ. Here's the sad reality. God was in front of him and he did not recognize him. Saul, the Pharisee, the one who knew the Scriptures. He says, who are you, Lord? Don't be confused. The, the Lord used there is not him recognizing this as God. It's him recognizing it as basically like a, a higher being. It's not him saying, oh Christ, you're the Lord. No, he, he's not, it's not what he's doing. He's recognizing that there is something greater than me. But he didn't recognize it as Christ. Otherwise, why would Christ have to tell him who he was, right? He didn't know it was God. He had studied the Scriptures so much, and yet he didn't recognize God when he spoke. He had went to church with the best of them, and yet he didn't recognize God. Why? We have to ask the question, why? Here's why. Saul worshipped a God indeed, but it was not the God of the Bible. It was a God that he had created. It was a God that he had created. That's why when the true God was before him, he did not recognize him. Because he wasn't looking for that God. He was looking for the God that he had created. For Paul, the God of self-justification, the God of self-righteousness. Listen, he thought he knew God. He thought he knew him so well that it was doubtless he believed that he was following godly precedents in rooting out these people who were apostates from the law of Moses. He felt so sure that he knew God that these, what he thought were righteous acts, he did with fervor and great commitment. These, this rooting out of these people who were defecting from Judaism. The reality is, is that most of us in this room, myself included, worship a God often that we have created and not the God of the Scriptures. That if God was to peel back the sky and, and say, why are you persecuting me? You'd be like, who are you? Oftentimes, the way that looks in our lives is we're confronted with sin in our lives, and, and Christ is saying to us, you are sinning in this way, and we go, what sin? And who are you? The God that we've created, oftentimes we take a couple passages here and there. We take what mom and dad told us over here, a few blogs and a couple bad sermons thrown in with a couple felt boards or two, all filtered through what we want God to look like, and there we have it. The God of our making. A God 
for many of us, that wants us to be happy. Or a disconnected God that's okay with me kind of doing what I want as long as I can check off these few boxes over here like going to church or praying when I eat my dinner. Listen, this is why many of us don't read the Bible or we're not transformed when we do read the Bible. It's because when we read the Bible, we're looking for our own God that we've created and we can't find Him in there. And so nothing changes us. Nothing, nothing turns up the heat of our affections for the Lord because when we read it, we go, that's not, that's not what I'm looking for. Keller said this, we don't realize it, but the, the God of our making is simply a projection of ourselves. Listen, the, the, the God that Paul worshipped, and, and you can learn this as you study Paul and his writings Later, you see the, the God of his liking was just simply a projection of himself. And the God of our making is a, simply a projection of ourselves. But here's the problem with that. Just like Paul, and we're going to get into this a little bit later, the problem is, is that the God that you've created cannot help you. He cannot help you. He can't actually transform you because a God created by your heart is limited to the abilities of your heart. And yet we look to this God to help us, to fix us. We know from the scriptures, we need something outside of us. That's what is so special and unique about the incarnation is that the answer to man's problems was not found within man. It came from the incarnated Christ who had to come from outside of this place. Paul did not recognize God because he worshipped the God of his own making. Listen, here's what's happening. For the first time, Saul is faced, even visibly, with the God who is actually real, instead of the God of his imagination. The God who is really real, the reality. Not the God of his imagination. Again, this that he is faced with is the God of the Bible. Listen, the God of the Bible comes at someone in the process of conversion. The reality of who God is comes at someone in the process of conversion. And oftentimes, almost always, telling you things about yourself that you don't like. What's he do to Paul here, or Saul? He tells him something he doesn't like. Listen, this whole crusade that you're on, not just is it wrong, but this whole crusade you're on is against me. You're doing that to me, the creator of the world. The one to whom you claim you are doing this for, you're actually doing these supposed righteous acts against me. And this God of the Bible doesn't just come at us oftentimes telling us things about ourselves we don't like. He also tells us things about Himself that we don't like. Meaning God is not concerned with making, like with just telling us things that we want to hear, whether it's about us or Himself. He is satisfied with telling us things that we need to hear. This is what Paul needed to hear. This is what Saul needed to hear. This is what happens again to Saul. Saul says to Saul, he says, I am God and you, the righteous acts of holding these sinners accountable is actually wretched. It's actually a display, Paul, of Saul, of your sinfulness. Indeed, you're persecuting the very God you claim to be worshiping. I'm sure Saul did not want to hear this. But what we cannot miss as well is that God was so incredibly gracious in transforming someone so utterly opposed to God's 
will. So utterly gracious. Listen, don't miss this. Saul did not ask for this to happen. Saul didn't do enough good to get it. He didn't say a special prayer or walk a special aisle. God sovereignly confronted Saul with the truth about himself and the truth about Saul himself. And if we are to be converted, if our children are to be converted, if our neighbors and our friends whom we dearly love are to be converted, God must confront them with the truth about who He is. About the reality of the God of the Bible. The truth is, is it might be you who delivers this truth. And it might be you who needs to be confronted with this truth. I need to ask the question, am I worshiping the God that I've created or the God of the Bible? I would encourage you to think about that regularly. So all of our, all, here's the reality is all of our pictures of who God is are all marred with sin, right? And, and all have mistakes in there. We have, when we worship God each day, there are aspects of which we are thinking about God that are completely wrong. And it's probably a creation of something that we want or a projection of ourselves. And then there's aspects for those who are following Christ, that there's going to be aspects of which you are worshiping the God of the Bible, But we should ask this question regularly. And if you're not sure if you're a follower of Christ, you should ask this question right now. Am I worshiping the God of the Bible? Or am I worshiping a God that I have created? And you, go, you might go, well, well, I don't even know if I know much about the God of the Bible. Hey, this, you're a great place to, to explore that. And you have the scriptures. And if you need help, we are here to help you work through that. Let's read on verse 6. But rise and enter the city. Again, Jesus saying this to Saul. And you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw Nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. The second component of conversion we see in this passage is that God reveals our darkness to someone who is converted. God must reveal at least some measure of their darkness. I'm going to explain what I mean by that. Listen, it's not just a cool thing that Saul was blind, like blinded. It's not just, oh, I think the way I'm going to reach into Saul's life is to blind him. It means something. God is showing us something. Remember that Saul is not just blinded by light. He is blinded by the exalted Messiah. Again, the light appears to be a manifestation of Christ's heavenly glory. If you read a passage like 2 Corinthians 4, 6, it says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There's this, this connectedness, this, this uh, sense of which this light, this blinding light, and the glory of Christ and the face of Christ are all connected. Again, Saul clearly believed that he was doing the will of the Lord. He believed he was doing something righteous. He believed he was eradicating these apostate people, these Jews who were leaving the faith, when indeed his actions revealed that he was blind to God's Messiah, Jesus. And so the light of Christ comes 
and reveals Saul's blindness. He's blinded. His darkness is shown to be what it was. This happens all the time in Christian ministry. When the truth is preached, when people collide with the truth, with the light, when darkness is in collision with the light, it exposes the darkness for what it is. And so when confronted with the glory of Christ, it blinds him. It blinds Paul. The the darkness of Paul is on display now. It blinds him. And it's during this time that God takes Saul through a journey of his darkness. So how do you how do you know how do you know what's happening in these three days of darkness? Just read Paul. Read Paul. We're going to read a little bit of it, but read Paul, and you'll see, hear him talking about the way life was before and what changed and what was altered, and and hear him talking later about times about what was happening even during these three days. Here's what happens during Paul's darkness. Paul rethinks a couple very key aspects of life. Those two things are this. His entire system of faith is turned upside down. He rethinks faith, and he rethinks how he understood himself. He said, okay, wait. His entire system of faith is turned upside down. I mean, understand, he... He has been on this track, a Pharisee of Pharisees. And now he's confronted with the true and living God. Keller said this, Saul was a good Pharisee for rejecting Jesus. He was good for rejecting Jesus because... They knew from the scriptures, and indeed it is true, that the Messiah would be blessed by God. But this supposed Messiah, Jesus, to the Pharisees, was not blessed by God, but indeed cursed by God. Because what happens to someone who's hung on a tree? Cursed is the one who is hung on a tree, right? So Saul would have been a great Pharisee for rejecting this Messiah. That could not be God's Messiah. He was cursed. But then Saul meets Jesus on the road. Wait, wait a a second. But he was cursed on a tree. But he's alive. Saul, Saul, in his eye, Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he's, he's not dead. He's alive. And Paul's going, if he was raised from the dead, then that means he was blessed by God. Now, wait a second. If he was cursed on a tree, but blessed by God, then that means, Paul's thinking, the reason he was cursed on the tree couldn't be because of something that he had done. It must mean he was cursed for someone else. That means He must have died for somebody else's sins. See, Paul would have understood this. Paul would have understood the idea of substitution. It was all over the Old Testament. That means he must have died for somebody else's sins. For our sins. And suddenly Saul looks at the scriptures in a whole new way. Saul was in darkness 
He was blinded by the glory of Christ to reveal his darkness. And yet, he begins to see, whoa, no, this is the Messiah. Paul also misunderstood himself, particularly in light of this God. In Acts 26, Paul retells this story. I'd encourage you, go read Acts 26 and hear what Paul says. I'm just going to read for you verse 14. He is retelling the story of the of the Damascus Road. He says this, And when he had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, now in the first telling of the story in Acts 9, this is left out, but now when Paul tells the story in Acts 26, he, he adds this extra phrase. Here's the question, what's a goad? What's a goad? Very simply, it's a prod that shepherds would use to poke and move sheep in the safe direction. Poke, right? You shouldn't go that direction, you should go this direction. One author, I think, makes a really great connection for us. In Romans 7, go read Romans 7. Not right now, this week. Paul talks about living apart from the law. Now, I'm going to take some pretty pretty difficult concept to to work through, but Paul talks about living apart from the law in Romans chapter 7. What's he talking about living apart from the law? How could Paul live apart from the law? He he abided by the law. What Paul, I think, is metaphorically talking about as living apart from the law is, is I was good. I was good. I, I lived righteously. And, and, and you can tell, I think, particularly from context, because what Paul was thinking is, I, I, I'm good on my own. I, I'm doing great. But then Paul says that one of the commandments got him. And the commandment that got him was the 10th commandment, the commandment of thou shalt not covet. And Paul, the way Paul talks about in Romans 9 is that this commandment pierced his heart. I think what Paul understood in Romans 7 is that this, this commandment that came through to me is telling me I cannot covet, and I covet. What is the idea of coveting? Coveting means to want something so bad that you are discontent. That doesn't just mean to want something. It means to, uh, to want something to an extent to which you're just unsatisfied. And Paul understood. Again, you could tell, just read Paul's writings, that you could tell Paul understood that I'm to be satisfied with God, so completely satisfied that I find no discontentment. And when the law of covetousness pierced his heart, it revealed to him that that could not happen for Paul, that he was a sinner. Here's what hap- what's happening. This is an example, this Romans 7 example is an example of one of the goads that Christ uses to pierce Paul's heart. And what Jesus says to him on the road, I'm going to love it, I love it. It's hard for you to kick against the goads, isn't it? And one of the goads that Christ had been prodding him along was the sin of covetousness. Not the sin, but the commandment. The law was revealing his need for a Savior. Listen, Paul's identity, if you will, was wrapped up in getting something that he could not have. And when he realized that he could not be completely satisfied with God and that he must have something else, he must have realized that he was breaking the 10th commandment. And the way Paul talks about it in Romans 7 is that it's at this point that Paul died. His whole basis of identity and who he thought he was, this awesome person, unraveled in that moment when the goad of the command, the 10th commandment came and pierced into Paul's heart. God... Christ, rather, prodding him and unraveling his understanding about who he was. 
So let me ask you this question. What is your identity wrapped up in? It may not be the 10th commandment. It might be another. Is it having influence in someone's life? Is it avoiding the demands of others? Is it reaching your ideals? Listen to me. The best that God can do for you is take you on a journey through your darkness in order to unravel your whole system of identity if it is found in anything other than Christ. And that might be a three-day painful process. It might be three decades. But God takes Paul through a journey and unravels his the whole basis of who he thought he was. No, Paul, you're not good enough on your own. You need me. The struggle, though, for us is that we, in pride, are so tied up in making our little systems of identity secure. That's what Paul was doing. Paul was busy. Right? It was these self-righteous acts and, and, and working through, working hard and, and being this righteous person on his own apart from the grace of God. I've got this. And God unravels the whole thing. But it was in pride that Paul secured these things. That Paul worked so hard. We don't like it when we feel like our world is unraveling or that which we find identity in is falling apart. And when anybody personally attacks it or gets a little too close to it, we pull out the big guns. But it's only when we admit our blindness and darkness that we can truly see. You'll see as we read through this story what happens, right? Paul begins to pray. He fasts and he prays. More on that in a second. But it's only... When Paul realizes his blindness, that he can truly see. Let's read. And there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. In the process of conversion, the third thing is that God embraces us as adopted children. He embraces us as his. He embraces us. Let's talk for a moment about Ananias. Ananias must first overcome his fear of the persecutor before he goes, right? I mean, I'd be like, God, for real? That's what you're thinking? Huh. I praise God for missionaries who go into countries that where they could lose their lives. A- 
and, and when he does overcome his fear, he becomes the means by which God, by the means by which God's intentions for Saul are first articulated, are first described, like the, the, the plan for, for Saul's life is first articulated by this man, Ananias, from God to Ananias and from Ananias then to, to Saul. He also becomes the means by which Paul's sight is restored. Peterson, one commentator, said this, The great antagonist of the gospel will become its outstanding protagonist. The persecutor will become the persecuted and suffer like Jesus himself. But notice what happens. Two very particular things that happen as Ananias comes into the room. First one is this. Ananias is told to go to the very man who has the authority to have him killed. And when he gets there, what does he call Saul? Brother. He calls him brother. Now, who would Ananias call brother? Not just anybody. He would have called someone brother who was praying to the real God. Someone who had seen Jesus. What is God doing? God is embracing Saul, the persecutor, now as one of his own. Brother. Brother. Second thing that happens is when Ananias sees Saul, he lays his hands on him. You've got to understand, the idea of laying on of hands is not just some small gesture. Particularly considering the context. This guy had the authority, even at this very moment, had the authority to bind Ananias' hands and take him back to Jerusalem to be put on trial. And he lays his hands on him. Here is the picture. Paul has been blinded, thrown into the pit of his darkness. And the picture Luke is painting for us is of God's loving embrace of Saul as now one of his own. Saul, you don't know the true God. I am the true God. Saul, you don't understand who you are. You are not righteous on your own. And Saul believes. The idea of him praying here in chapter 9 is, again, not just him offering up his righteous, uh, pharisaical prayers that he would have been offering up most of his life. He is praying because he knows who God is now. So what is happening? When God embraces Saul as one of his own, what happens? The blindness is gone. So how do we know that this is more than just a laying his hands on? Hey, hey brother there, you're, you're a good guy. Let me, let me pray for you, right? What's happening? He's, he is blessed now because of the laying of hands on Saul. His scales, something like scales fall from his eyes. And what else happens? It says the Spirit comes upon Saul. Who, who does the Spirit come upon, particularly in this context? Those who believe faith in Christ. Those who believe in His resurrection and His death. See, Saul, it's happening. Saul is embraced as one of God's own. This wretched, murderous, self-righteous jerk is rescued. He is humbled. His self-righteousness is ripped away. Again, he is faced with the truth that he didn't know the God of the Bible, but a God that he had created and he is faced with the darkness of his own sin. Clearly, during this time of blindness, Saul realizes his sin debt before the Lord. 
and God's gracious payment of that debt through the blood of Jesus Christ. Right, because again, who does the Spirit come upon? Those who believe in the blood payment of Christ for their sins. That's the transformation that took place over these three days. This is who God is. Paul rethinking who he is. This Christ is someone I desperately need. I don't know. It could have happened within 10 minutes of the blindness and the road. It could have happened within two minutes. It could have taken two and a half days. All we know, though, is during that time, these three days, Paul is converted. He's transformed. And now he sees the real God, the one of the Bible, the one greater than his heart, the one that can actually rescue Paul from his sin, particularly of covetousness, as we learn in Romans 7. And what happens is the community of God embraces him as a brother through Ananias, and God embraces him as his child. Listen, Saul is the person that you and I would have never thought God would redeem. And yet Saul thought of himself as the one person at the very least God would accept. Consider your own life for just a second. Could you be Saul? Meaning, could you be living like Saul? Zealous for your own righteousness, worshiping a God that you have created. Could it be that you, I don't care how long you've come to this church, I don't care how long you've been in a church or what denomination or Could it be that you've never really met the God of the Bible? Again, I don't care how many times you've read through the Bible in its entirety. Could you be worshiping a God that you have created? You know, again, one of the the things to ask yourself is, does your God ever tell you something you don't want to hear? Because the God of the Bible tells you things you don't want to hear all the time. So consider your own life. Also consider the lives of others. Is there anybody that you think there is no way God is going to save that person? Or do, do, you, do you work with people, go to school with people, live next to people where you're like, yeah, I think God could save them. What? Listen, do you really believe that God can save them? Listen, if, Paul, if God can save Saul, then he can save that person. Listen, God saves whom he chooses and he does it regardless of the good or bad qualities that that person might have. Jesus' blood can cover it all. And just because we see a person as, uh, you know, I just don't know about that. Listen, I mean, I don't know if that's any of you. I've been that. I've thought that many times. Ah, man, I just don't know. But I know better. Just mean just not believing, sinning, not trusting God. God saves whom He chooses, and He does it regardless of the good or bad qualities a person might have. And we have no clue whom God is going to save. Our responsibility is to share the good news of Jesus. In the end, our story of conversion, Paul's, Saul's story of conversion simply follows in the footsteps of Jesus. Keller said this, Jesus was knocked down on the road. He was crucified to a cross. He didn't have a few days of dark thoughts, but real darkness came down on him and the whole land. Then after three days, he was raised And if you die with him, you will live with him. Let's pray. Father, I I know as I've 
experienced in my own life that the journey through our need for you is painful. And indeed, it's not usually a one-time journey, but an ongoing journey. Father, where you are gracious and kind. Father, I don't think we realize it, but we have Damascus Road-type experiences all the time. Times where you reveal our sinfulness. By the glory of your grace. And then you lead us to the cross. And upon repentance, you grant us forgiveness. Father, we are desperately in need of your rescuing work. We cannot save ourselves. Father, you're so kind to do that. You're so merciful and gracious to rescue someone like Saul and to rescue someone like us, a people like us. So Father, I pray for those who are your children already in this room, that Father, you would continue to work your spirit in their lives through your word and through this community, that you would help them see, first of all, their, the reality of who you are and who they are. And Father, you would lead them to know the embrace of your loving arms. And Father, for those in here who may not know your son as their savior, Father, I pray that you would Give them a heart to believe. Give them a heart to believe that they cannot do this on their own. That they cannot be right before you on their own. That they need a redeemer. Someone who paid the price for their sins. And that it's free. Because it's grace. Father, I... Ask these things, these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.